judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Happy Black History Month. Happy February. Happy Black History Month. Yay. We got a treat for you today, but we'll get to that. I thought you meant for me. I was like, me? (laughs) Is it cookies? (laughs) I was like, are you are you done with your new me, new body January? Have you been bombarded with it? No. Oh. No, I have not. But I will say I am. One of the things I'm trying to do is keep my phone out of the bedroom. Okay. Which leads to less scrolling because and one of my bad habits. Tapes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh I, don't, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> You're like, we record with a tripod on an actual camera. How dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. How'd you know? How'd you guess? Um, no, but what I was finding is that I would wake up early and be in pain. And then instead of getting up or like taking something and going back to sleep, I would distract myself by scrolling. And then I'd end up scrolling for like stupid hours. It'd be like an hour and a half later. And I'm like, I should actually get up. So I found if I keep it out of the bedroom, once I'm actually physically out of bed, then I spend less time scrolling on it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's why I haven't been as bombarded with those like new year, new me bullshit things because I'm staying off of and staying off is relative right like yeah don't get me wrong i didn't give up social media but Mm -hmm. um cutting back has helped me how about you i i don't get it so much on social media in that way because i've blocked a lot of it but like i get like a lot of ads on tv like jenny craig has like a delivery food system now that i know about and i'm like cool hulu thanks for telling me that but like where i'm getting it is from like really surprising i guess not surprising but like um so i'm pregnant we've discussed this and like i follow all these like pregnancy like mom things and like you know preparing yourself for birth and just like instagram knows i'm pregnant i think it knows my due date like it knows everything it oh knows it does so much. it um, does <laughs> and i keep getting these like oh, now I can like eat whatever I want for Thanksgiving and Christmas because because I'm pregnant. No one will call me fat. Like, oh, wearing like black slimming turtlenecks because like I need people to know that I'm pregnant and not fat. And I'm just like, oh my God, that's so terrible. And then me and my husband went to the doctor the other day and every woman was wearing like a black something. And I was like, is it New York or is it... um, like to be slimming. Mm. And my husband was like, I don't know, because I was wearing like an orange t-shirt with like Angela Bassett on it. And I'm just like, I'm a colorful person. I love person. that for you. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so then I'm just like, he's like, it's probably slimming. Cause like, you know how like women are sometimes. And I was like, yeah. But, but it's also imagine- January in New York or I'm, mean, excuse me. It's February. Just kidding. It's yeah. February. It's February. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, honestly, if you get on the subway, I am always like so excited because I have a red winter coat mm-hmm. and like everyone else's winter coat is black or maybe dark heather no, charcoal. This was like underneath coats. Like we're all hot. So we're in this waiting room and we've all taken off our coats mm-hmm. and everyone's wearing like black pants, black shirt. 
And I'm thinking, like, if this is a slimming thing from, like, the things I'm seeing, like, the jokes on Instagram about, like, I'm not fat, I'm pregnant, or this baby's ruining my life because now I'm fat. I'm like, could you imagine, like, growing a whole, like, I'm growing a brain, a skeleton, like, little livers and kidneys. The last thing I'm worried about is being fat. Like, that's the last thing I'm worried about is, like, any waking. But, like, there are women who, and I guess it's, I blame the patriarchy, I guess, but, like, there are women on social media who are, like, losing their minds over, like, the weight gain in pregnancy. And I'm just, like... You need to gain weight. Like, literally, that's your job right now, right? Exactly. (laughs) And, like, I think it's because I've kind of always been, like, outside of the spectrum because I've always been fat. So, like, trends, they're not really for me. Like, I've never had to try to... I've never been, like allowed to fit in so I like stand out I guess so I'm never worried about like oh no someone's gonna think I'm fat I am fat like it's fine and like the idea of worrying about weight gain or trying to like regulate what you're eating because you don't want to gain weight in your pregnancy is wild to me I'm like I am like a science fiction character over here growing body parts out of nowhere that is so much more amazing than like gaining 15 pounds like it just it it seems so weird to me and it seems annoying and I do feel bad for the women who are falling under the pressure of it because pregnancy is already so stressful and if I had to worry about like waking I luckily because I guess because of my size I haven't really gained a lot there are definitely times where I'm just like I lean into the cravings and then like we'll weigh ourselves and we'll see it and I'm like I see it but also like whatever like I'm not gonna not have pretzels because I'm worried about the calories when the baby like and like I've been having so much ice cream and chocolate milk like the baby wants calcium and like I don't normally drink milk like I'm lactose intolerant so I've got like lactate <laughs> milk and lactate ice cream mm-hmm. but I've been craving it like I've got chocolate milk right here I All never right. drink chocolate milk if this baby wants it so like I'm not gonna be like oh how many calories are in this whole milk like it just seems so dumb like and it's it's I mean you I talked know. about the patriarchy and obviously capitalism as well yeah, but there's that. like the generational trauma of it all too that that sort of generational passing down of like oh I was your mother and I had babies and then I didn't like lose the weight and I didn't go back to my, and it's like, but you grew a human. You don't need to go back to what you look, but that gets passed down and, and, and there will be criticism from people directly going like, Mm -hmm. like your mother, your mother-in-law, not you specifically, but like, (laughs) I'm like, my mom is also like a plus size woman and she would never, say anything no. like that to me. I don't no. think I don't think anybody ever said that. Maybe someone did say that to her, but I I can imagine. I I can and I can't. Someone asking me about like my snapback, like what am I going to do after the baby to like lose weight? It would be such a fucking conversation. I would love for someone to ask me that. I'd I would really love to. <laughs> it'd be it'd I'm be not really fun to bite. watch me go off on this person. <laughs> be like, "Oh, what makes you think that I'm looking to lose a whole bunch of weight?" Like what makes you what makes you think that mm-hmm. yeah 2024 is the year of asking people what made you say that <laughs> i love that yeah i think that's that's the question it's it, look let's get to the bottom of this huh what is yeah. what is your issue because it's not my issue exactly it's yours i have you gotta, been told, you gotta be in that diva era yes i have <laughs> been told like um, oh, you're going to lose so much weight after the baby because when you breastfeed, like I, I'll talk about breastfeeding and they're like, oh, you're going to lose so much weight. And I'm just like, that's 
cool, I guess. But you also have to eat a bunch of calories because you have to make all this milk. So it's like not really, it's not really right. my fucking concern. My concern is that like my breast milk will come in, which TMI, I'm like leaking all the fucking time. And no one told me that was going to happen this early. Oh, I wake up and I'm just like, why is my shirt wet? <laughs> Who was going to tell me? I'm telling all of you future mothers out there, you just get a fucking leak out of nowhere. It's not and like before enough. the baby even comes, huh? Yeah. Like it's not enough to like, I don't change my shirt, but it's just like, what is that? Got it. Got and then it. Pete tried to like lick my shirt this morning. Oh I was my like, God. I don't know if you should do that. Please stop. It was weird. Anyway, enough about my boobs. Um, how was your January? How are January classes? Oh, wait, did yeah. they start? Yeah. Yes. January classes started January 2nd and then they went right up until the um like two days before the spring semester started and i just like i don't even know how the students do it i barely can do it and i'm a professor those poor students like there's no like time in between like well that there's that right so they got from the 22nd presuming they had finals up until the last day the last day possible finals up until december 22nd then they had off until january 2nd the final ends for January session, um, it ended on January 23rd, and then we start classes on the 25th. So it's it was literally nine classes, but I'm not about to meet for like three hours on Zoom with students three times a week, mm-hmm. so I did a lot of like pre-recorded videos and things like that that I put out there, but I'm like... That's smart basically trying to get them to do a week's worth of work in a day so if we have nine days yeah i'm like you've got to do a whole week's work and even then i'm cutting stuff because my class was 14 weeks long right so it's just like that's tough how they got through writing a paper doing a presentation so their final was a a presentation which i had them do live because then i could grade it while they were like while they were presenting because oh, that's smart that's like a the grades are due technique. the next day yeah like how do you grade 35 final papers in a day i and it's I important to it. get your grades in on time it is it upsets students and it upsets the registrar's office but i mean and especially in this because the students for many of them if it's a prerequisite for moving on to another class yeah they, they have to it. know what their grade is before they can sign up for that other class so it's mm-hmm. it's a whole thing Anyway, such yeah. a tight turnaround for a prerequisite. Like, ooh, I don't think I could. I think I'd be like, I'll take that prerequisite in fall. Yeah, and and what gets me is like, okay, some of them who are seniors, this is like a 1,000 mm-hmm. level class. Um, we do thousands instead of hundreds, whatever. Um, it's a 1,000 level class. And many of them have taken the 4,000 level capstone classes. So they like mm-hmm. know how to write papers and stuff. Yeah. And you can see those students as opposed to like those who've only had a semester or two or like haven't done any writing classes really in the quality of the work that they submitted. So mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh yeah, I can tell you know how to write a paper and I can tell that you just checked off the boxes on my like <laughs> assignment criteria and yeah. That would have been me. I took my last year. I did summer, fall, winter, spring, and then graduated spring because I transferred. So I like lost a lot of credits and I was like 
a year and a half behind like everyone who graduated high school with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I was like, what can I take for winter? That's super fucking easy. And I was like a film major. So it was like, yeah, okay, I'll take this like monster movie class. Thanks. Like I took like, yeah. the easier things. So like I could focus just on that. Cause like well, that is a quick, like winter is a hard. It's term. hard. And and I've had, I've had two students tell me they're taking two January classes. Ugh, and I'm like, I, don't know, I don't know. Like, unless you literally do nothing else yeah during like i had to work and do that so right right yeah Yeah, it's just it is wild i don't know how they do it um but kudos to all of you who passed um i'm happy for you oh speaking of work um last well in january our barnes and noble closed the one that we met at um and we went it was barnes and noble in tribeca and they were having like crazy sale but uh we went there to be like, goodbye, old friend. <laughs> yes. Um, it was really, I cried because, of course, um, thinking about like how many like friendships I've built in that place. And like this mm-hmm. podcast was built because of that place. Exactly. Um, but like support your local bookstores. I don't know about Barnes & Noble Barnes anymore. And Noble. <laughs> well, I was going to say, is Barnes & Noble really what, like, I don't consider them my local bookstore, even if I lived no. in Tribeca. But um I don't know, but it's just like I feel bad for anytime a bookstore closes. Exactly, because like we have so few bookstores in New York City. Like it's kind of crazy. So like every time one closes, I'm just like, oh, I feel I feel people getting dumber. I will say one thing I love about New York is that we do have bookstores that are like black owned, women owned, queer yeah. owned. We have a a whole bookstore for like the drama bookstore, right? Mm-hmm. Which is now like if not owned, co owned by Lin-Manuel Miranda like it was yeah because it was closing this was a few years back like maybe I don't know if it was before the I think it was before the pandemic and then there were like Mm -hmm. holdups because of it but it was losing its space wherever it was located and so he like helped get it in a new spot so yeah but we just like I love that we have those little bookstores and for those of you Mm -hmm. who live in areas where you don't look up some community bookstores online and they'll ship to you just the same way Amazon will do it. Yeah. And they're nicer about it. Like my favorite is um, Books Are Magic. They have two locations in Brooklyn. They have one in Brooklyn Heights and I think off Bergen Street is the other one. But they're great. And But I was like, oh, I need this book and I need it like in two days. Should I just get it from Amazon? So I like called and I was like, hey, could you order this? And like, what's the quickest we can get it? And they were like two days. And I was like, bet thank you like mm-hmm. i feel like lots of people think like little stores aren't gonna have things but if they don't have them they can get them like very yes. easily so like and my my local bookstore is the community bookstore in park slope mm-hmm. and i think they also have a location in windsor terrace it's got a slightly different name but they're connected um and they actually have a whole system where you can it's kind of like your goodreads it's like a wish list mm-hmm. for their website like you can just be like oh these oh, are nice. all the books that i want at some point and then when you're ready to purchase them you can and they have like a reward system and everything oh, that's good yeah it's it's awesome i love it support, support your, your local bookstores, bookstores and if you yes. don't have one support our local bookstores <laughs> there's also green light books that's over by like atlantic avenue and i'm talking like everyone listening is in brooklyn but like there's just like very good bookstores and both of those are women owned i believe yeah I, I do think i think i follow them on instagram yeah yeah I, no Never mind. i was like there's one but i can't remember the name it's like libros cone something 
Mm, and I it's don't. a bookstore and a cafe, and they have very good coffee. Um, but I have not purchased a book there. But they have very good coffee, and the setup is nice. The vibes are nice. Um, but it's like Libros Cone something. I'll figure it out. I'll throw it up on the Instagram. Yeah, we'll make a list for you so you can order from our local bookstores if you don't have one. <laughs> or share your favorite local bookstores with us so yeah. we can shout them out. But we should probably get into our episode. We should. So today we're going to be talking about women, but not just any women, women of the civil rights movement. We're kicking off Black History Month, baby. So we're going to discuss the history of the civil rights movement, including some of the well-known events, and then talk about how women were not only involved in these events, but also often held leadership roles. Then we're going to discuss how the media of the time viewed their fight and how history upholds or diminishes their efforts. This will be followed up with further details on how women truly were the backbone of the civil rights movement. Finally, we're going to discuss how their struggles impacted women of the time and women of today. So a couple trigger warnings that probably won't shock you in any way, uh, but we will be talking about racism and sexual harassment. So... And this may be a silly question. I don't know. But Kim, what are your experiences with like the civil rights movement and women of the civil rights movement? Not much, actually. So I feel like I learned more doing research for this than I did in school, which is sad. Mm -hmm. um, so like as a black woman, I'm like super proud of the work that these women have done. Like I literally wouldn't have the life I have if they didn't work for it. So I'm really excited to talk about their legacy and like get their their story out there. And like there were so many that we didn't cover. So this could easily be a part two. Yeah. Yeah. It was so hard to pick and choose like what yeah. names to put in. And it was just like, OK, I have to stop researching so that I stop adding more names because yeah. <laughs> it can be overwhelming. But, you know, I, I you mentioned school and not really talking about it. And and I think like for me, I absolutely had very minimal exposure to this information growing up. And I'm actually upset and pretty annoyed that I didn't know that many of these women existed or mm -hmm. know the roles that they played. Like for me growing up, I, there was only one woman of the civil rights movement. It was Rosa Parks. She was mm -hmm. literally the only name that I knew. And that's not okay. So we're hoping we can change that with our discussion today. Yeah. But I do love that everything is is right there. Like once you start looking for it, it just like tumbles out of the wall. So it's like, wow, y'all could have put this in a textbook, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it, all right there. Like there's so much of it. There or maybe should be a people kids just book. Like, I have women one. Of, women of the Civil Rights Movement kids oh, book. Oh, no. I have a, I forget what it's called. Sorry, I'll find it later. It was on my baby list. And it's like um, influential, like, I think it's like black leaders, black women leaders or something. Okay. That I awesome. got for the baby. It's like, he's going to learn. <laughs> yes, as he should. <laughs> Let's start with a quick reminder of when the civil rights movement in the United States took place and what it entailed. So the civil rights movement took place in the mid 20th century. Specifically, we're looking at the years 1954 to 1968. It was a nationwide movement for equal rights for African-Americans and for an end to racial segregation and exclusion. The movement took many forms and included a wide variety of ways of making their demands known. This included things like sit-ins, boycotts, protests, marches, freedom rides, and lobbying government officials to take legislative action and make policy changes. 
There was strong pushback from people who thought the world was just fine how it was, and anger was felt on many fronts, and African-American advocates for civil rights were victims of bombings, beatings, arrests, and assassinations. By the end of the 1960s, the civil rights movement had brought many changes in the law and in public practice, not so much in the feelings over everyday folks, though. These changes secured legal protections of rights and freedoms for African-Americans that shaped U.S. life in the decades since, but it didn't stop people from being mad about it. To this day, unfortunately, right? There were many events during the civil rights movement, large and small, that contributed to the changes that came about during these decades. All of these events involved black women, but some we might not know about in as much detail. So first we'll recap some of the key events and then we'll dig into a discussion on the different women who were involved and how. So let's talk about Brown versus the Board of Education. That's a big one. I feel like that mm -hmm. should be a, it should ring some bells. Um, so the NAACP Legal Defense and the Education Fund spent decades fighting against racial segregation in education. This case, which gathered together five separate cases on school segregation, led to the overturning of Separate But Equal, a principle established by Plessy versus Ferguson in 1889. On May 17, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously that separate education facilities were inherently unequal. Hmm. Yeah, because they are. What? You mean back when a time when the U.S. Supreme Court made like... Well, they probably didn't make that many logical decisions, but <laughs> that one was a win. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next up, let's talk about Rosa Parks' arrest and the Montgomery bus boycott. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus to a white passenger. This led to the Montgomery bus boycott. And as you may or may not know, uh, Rosa Parks was not the first black woman to do this, but we'll come back to that in a bit. So let's talk about the Little Rock School integration crisis. So many states resisted desegregation after the Supreme Court's decision, because of course they did. Mm -hmm. In 1957, my mom was born in 1952, so this is like crazy to me. <laughs> In 1957, nine African-American students attempted to attend Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. The governor ordered the state's National Guard to surround the high school, and the black students were harassed and barred from entering the school. President Eisenhower nationalized Arkansas's National Guard and sent the troops to protect the students and enforce the desegregation order. Could you imagine? Like, the National Guard goes out for, like, storms and shit. Like, big national disasters that, like, happen. And mm -hmm. they just, like, had to go... Make sure some kids could go to school. Right, because they're what a waste of tax being dollars. threatened. It's disgusting. Insane. There's also the Birmingham campaign. So most people associate this with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and rightly so. But as we'll find out, there are plenty of women involved in this campaign as well. It was a large-scale campaign of sit-ins and marches in Birmingham, Alabama, to protest the city's segregation policies. Many of the protesters and leaders were arrested and put in jail. This is when Dr. King wrote what would later become known as the Letter from Birmingham Jail, widely regarded as a classic defense of the principles of civil disobedience. So let's talk about the March on Washington. So the March on Washington happened on August 28th, 1963. Hundreds of thousands of people marched on, marched on Washington for what was known as the largest nonviolent civil rights demonstration in the country's history. It was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The demands included the end of discrimination in education, housing, employment, and more. Leaders met with members of Congress and President Kennedy and 
and the march ended at the Lincoln Memorial with music, speeches, and including Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. That was a big day. Yeah. Yep. Um, now, the Selma Civil Rights Marches. The first march took place on March 7, 1965, and was led by activist and later U.S. Representative John Lewis. He and other protesters were attacked by state troopers and sheriff's deputies as they attempted to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. There is coverage of them being beaten, tear gassed, and trampled by police horses. The outrage from across the nation brought activists, religious leaders, and other citizens to Selma in support of the march. Two days later, Dr. King led a second group of marchers to the bridge where they prayed and then returned to church. Two weeks after the initial march, thousands crossed the bridge, this time protected by the National Guard, as they headed to Montgomery. The National Guard was working overtime. But I, it made me think about, like, today, or maybe less today, but, like, during Trump's administration, if they had tried to, like, march a couple weeks later, they wouldn't have the protection of the U.S. National Guard. In fact, he might have sent them out against them. Well, yeah, I think, like, the National Guard does the bidding of the government. So if they're sending you to help, they're sending you to help. If they're sending you to, like, disband these people, they're sending you to disband. So, like, they're not... They're a neutral force, I guess. Like, they go where they're told. So it really depends on who's in charge. Yeah. Everything depends on who's in charge. So finally, we want to mention the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the the Voting Rights Act of 1965. These are, without question, the most two significant pieces of civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. These acts made discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin illegal. They banned discrimination in public accommodations, public education, and employment. And they prohibited race-based restrictions on voting. And honestly, in today's world, I, I question to what extent this is being dismantled. Yeah. Especially, like, I'm thinking, like, the education part. like. Mm-hmm. The education part, um, I was thinking about uh, the employment part as well. If you want to claim you're a private entity or something mm-hmm. or right. I, and I know it's not directly related, but like the whole like, oh, I want to make a website, but not for black people or not for gay people or yeah. not for fill in the blank people. Like, and you just I like, feel like there's a connection. Private. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think that this was. I mean, this was clearly set up to like stop that and people have just not gotten better over the years. So they're like trying to find ways around Mm -hmm. like doing this because this says you can't do any of that shit. And it's like, well, I can because this is like a private business. I don't know. I hope all those private businesses fail. (laughs) (laughs) Same. You don't want to make a gay cake? Don't make a gay cake. Don't make any cakes. Be uh, capitalism doesn't work for you in that way. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You might have people who support your vision, but are they buying your cakes? You know, like I just exactly. I, I, exactly. I I'm not going to force anybody to work with me if they don't like something about my life. Like I don't want to give you money if you don't like 100 percent support me as a human being. Like, yeah, it's just a matter of where you live and where you hold your business. Will you find more people it. who support you or not? Right. We've, we've done, we've talked about this before and you've like schooled me in that way where I'm like, Oh yeah, not everybody lives in a big city where they can just be like, there are 20 people who make cakes. Like I think the last example you used was like, if somebody made like a prosthetic arm or something and decided like not to make one for you because like they didn't like your haircut. And it's like, well now I can't have a prosthetic arm because there's no one else who makes it here. 
I literally don't remember doing that, but I love that that I did apparently. (laughs) It was something like that because I get very much in my, this is New York City. You have so many options bubble and it's like not everybody does and Mm -hmm. everyone can't move. We can't can't afford to have any more refugees from shitty cities come here. Like people who get booted out of Ohio. Refugees from countries where you uh, are actually facing oppression. Yes, please keep coming. No, that makes sense. (laughs) But I don't want like the, the gay kid from Ohio who can't live in Ohio because everybody in his town sucks and hates the fact that he's gay. He has to come to New York to like feel safe. No one should have to do that. And like, right. You should, we should be charging these states money for housing the broken people they're sending us who are so beaten by the shitty situations they come from. And it's like, you could just let people live and be fine. What? But like, you treat people terribly, and then they have to come to New York and they have to find a place to live, and it's so expensive here. Like, I hate it. I hate it so much. And I'm like, you know what? There's so much land in places like Ohio and like Indiana, but if people were just not shitty, and let people live i'm sure they would stay maybe i don't know who wants to be in who wants to have six roommates because their parents like hate the fact that they're gay it just seems so dull like no one wants it alone. But, you know. no one wants it but like you have to like but like I you said why the access big cities become such a mecca yeah the access is key so mm-hmm. um so anyway we mentioned a bunch of these these sort of well-known events or semi well known depending on your experience with um with the subject but we want to talk about the women involved in this now you know because women played a crucial role in all of these events and honestly in the civil rights movement overall black women had been marginalized if not outright excluded from women's suffrage organizations in the late 1800s and the early 1900s and had founded their own groups to advocate for the rights of African-American women as well as men. Early leaders such as Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell spoke out for their rights as people of color and as women. Honestly, this was like intersectionality before there was a name for it. Mm-hmm. So now there are a lot of women that we can discuss as part of this episode, and we'll dive into a few of them in more detail in later sections. So here are just uh, like a quick rundown of the many women who played an important part in the events that we just mentioned. So we'll start with Septima Poinsett Clark. Uh, She was an educator from South Carolina who developed the citizenship schools, which taught and encouraged African-Americans to read and write and harness the power of literacy, education, and civics to gain their civil rights and empower their communities. Her idea for citizen education became the cornerstone of the civil rights movement. And then you have Dorothy Height, a.k.a. the godmother of, civil, of the civil rights movement. She started her fight as early as the 1930s, and she helped organize the 1963 March on Washington and influenced male leaders such as Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. I love that she helped organize the march, but we don't hear her name. No. Mm-mm. Then we have Fannie Lou Hamer, who fought for civil rights in rural Mississippi. She pushed for desegregation and African-American voter registration rights. She was a leader during the 1964 Freedom Summer Campaign and co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which fought for social integration. 
Next up is Daisy Bates, who was active in the civil rights movement in Arkansas. She and her husband published a weekly paper advocating for African-American civil rights. She was also a key figure in desegregating schools after the Brown versus Board of Education decision and served as a mentor and supporter of the Little Rock Nine. These are the students who were selected to integrate the Little Rock Central High School uh, that we mentioned before back in 1957. Next up is McCree Harris. She was part of the civil rights movement in Georgia. She was an educator who urged her students to get involved with the movement and was part of the Freedom Singers. This is a group that used music to educate people on events of the civil rights movement. And I love that. Like there are all different ways to learn. And yeah, right? that's a way to get to someone who might not go to a political rally or something mm -hmm. like that. If you're at church or you're wherever and you're singing, that's another way to learn. Yeah, to open up minds. I do like that. Then we have Shirley Sherrod who became an activist after her father was killed by a white farmer in 1965. She was a strong advocate for African-American land ownership and land retainment. She later served as the Georgia State Director of Rural Development for the USDA during the Obama administration. So uh, Sharada is still alive, right? Um, mm. And there's this whole thing about her being fired that... I honestly, maybe we could put her on the list because I think we should dig into it. It it okay. It's a whole thing. It involves Breitbart, gross, but it does. And edited excerpts of a speech. So hmm. like basically they took some of her speech out of context and put it out there and was like, see how racist she is, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and yeah, so she got like fired and then offered to have her job back and she was like mm, no thanks <laughs> it's a whole thing okay i'm interested I, we could cover her that'd be fun um then we have georgia gilmore which is such a pretty name i don't okay. know i like everything about that name um she was a cook who was fired from her job for participating in the montgomery bus boycott so instead she opened up a restaurant in her home which served as a safe space for local civil rights leaders she also formed the club from nowhere which was a group of black women who would bake cake would bake and sell cakes and pies to raise money for the bus boycott i tried to find the name of her restaurant that she opened in her house and i could not find it but i like found pictures of her and she like vaguely looks like me and i'm just like cool i love it <laughs> i love it but i just i like that idea of like you know what Play to your strengths. She's a cook. Yeah. She knows how to bake things. She knows that there are other women who know how to bake things and they can sell them to raise money. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last one we'll talk about in this section is Joanne Robinson. She was a teacher in Montgomery, Alabama, who became involved in the civil rights movement after being verbally attacked by a white bus driver. In addition to organizing for and supporting the Montgomery bus boycott, she also helped organize the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the first black civil rights organization outside of the NAACP. So as we said, this is just a handful of names. We will be mentioning a bunch more throughout the remaining sections of the podcast, though. Let's talk about... The most famous, because like, when you said in like your opening section how Rosa Parks was like the one that you knew about, for me it was Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks were like the three that were covered every Black History Month in school. And you didn't really hear much. Maybe you heard like Mega Everts, but like not really. Like it was just those three. Constantly. And I will say that is probably a very New York thing too. Or oh, yeah. at least a very diverse, uh, like Medgar Evers. I did not hear about him until like, 
Like I knew of the school, but I didn't even know who yeah. it was named after until like two years ago, right? I definitely learned of the school before I learned who he was. And I probably learned the I learned it because of the school. And then yeah. even Malcolm X, as someone who grew up in like a suburban white town, I don't think mm-hmm. we really learned about him. We might have heard his name at some point, but we didn't learn anything. It was Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. And that was the civil rights movement. <laughs> well, I think because like... Malcolm X was more radical right. and they were like, we can't tell people about him. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. white kids. Yes. Everyone will get upset. So anyway, Rosa Parks, talk about her for a second. So she was by far the woman who got the biggest media response at the time. She is one of the most notable women during this movement because of the Montgomery bus boycott. So we should all know this, but school kind of speeds over these things. So let's backtrack. Parks wasn't just tired that day. I mean, maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. That's besides the point. This was planned. Maybe she was tired of the bullshit. Oh, she definitely was tired of that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. Her refusal to give up her seat on the bus was tactical. She was working with Dr. King and the black delegation, not to end segregated seating. It was the law. So there was no way around that. But what the group was looking for was more courteous treatment on the buses, the hiring of black drivers on routes serving black neighborhoods, and a first-come, first-served seating by race, back to front and front to back, with no one having to give up their seat or stand over an empty seat. So how did the media respond to this? Well, they and the bus company were like super surprised. They'd never heard any complaints. The bus company assured that they would not be making any changes and the media shrugged it all off. Parks and other boycotters organized carpools, black owned taxis or just walked. This hurt the bus company's wallet. So the police were involved to try and stop the strike. Meanwhile, newspaper articles claim that the police were just out in force to protect the boycotters. But in fact, police harassment was rampant. Local police officers pulled over cars, intimidated drivers, and gave tickets for real or imagined infractions. If you were carpooling, they came after you. The goal was to make all other forms of transportation so difficult that black people would just get back on the bus. It didn't work. Parks and the black people of Montgomery stood strong till the Montgomery bus company was on the verge of bankruptcy. I love this so much, and I am so mad that I didn't learn that at school. Like, they were begging people to take the bus. Mm -hmm. Like. Black people were like, we're not doing it. Like it started. They would in, um, walk. Yeah, it started in the summer and they were like, it's hot. We've done it. Now it's spring. We can do it again. Winter. OK, no problem. Like they were yeah, just like, winter no, we're in not. Alabama. They were, <laughs> they were good. Right. And they, if they made it through the summer in Alabama, spring was not a problem. So mm-hmm. like you weren't getting them back on the buses. Like and these were the ridership. I forgot the numbers, but it was like well in the thousands. Like it was enough people that when they stopped showing up, the company got scared. Like we can't afford this because not many white people took the bus. Lots of them had cars. So like, and the people who did were like probably very, very low income. So it's like, you're not getting any more money out of them. So right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The media and the townspeople also held strong though, stating that parks and others wanted to ride the buses, but that they were tricked and manipulated by the boycott leaders who city officials began to refer to as quote, a group of Negro radicals. I want that on a hat. Okay. (laughs) Speaking of the boycotts, years later, Rosa Parks reflected the feeling on the feelings of the black community that day by remarking, the white segregationists tried to put pressure to stop us. Instead of stopping us, they would encourage us to go on. 
The boycott lasted just over a year, leading to parks and members of the black community putting up with repeated arrests, bombings, jailings, threats, and general harassment until the U.S. Supreme Court finally declared segregation on Alabama buses to be unconstitutional. For this, Rosa Parks was considered the mother of the civil rights movement and a hero in some circles and a radical menace in others. I mean, I love that. Be both. That's I'd like that on a hat radical menace <laughs> yes <laughs> so while parks worked hand in hand with the men in power her actions were diminished by the media to that just that one act of defiance by an old woman tired one day on a bus also she was 42 <laughs> so my she's not age. that old yeah <laughs> my age that- literally honestly <laughs> though like sometimes i feel like an old woman but they really kind of to be fair, they kind of like the pictures. They right? really leaned into that, right? They yeah. did. They we'll we'll get to that. But yes. Um, so partial this is partially due to racism and the idea that like blacks weren't actually smart enough to put a movement of this caliber together. The media wasn't really interested in showing the movement winning. You know, it did it, it didn't work well for their bottom line. Like the idea was that these black people were like too dumb to get anything started, but like they changed this. Like they didn't even want segregation to go away. They just wanted people to be nicer to them on the thing that they were paying for, and like maybe some black drivers. And, and to they be got able segregation to, sit to go away. If there away. were empty seats, yeah, and they got like so much more. So the media coverage extends beyond the world news here. During the civil rights movement, issues of voters' rights, voter registration, integration, workplace equality, segregation, and more were in the news every day. But they were still largely absent in the entertainment world. So let's turn our attention to the women who would bring attention to the movement to both their stage and film audiences. So you have Josephine Baker, who I feel like her name like rings bells, right? But I would have never linked her to anything civil rights movement. But it's super interesting that she did work on a lot of things. So she was known for her work on stage and in film. And at the height of her career in the 1920s, she moved to France. In 1925, she found more success there. But she refused to perform in front of segregated crowds or in locations where she was where she was refused hospitality. She worked with the NAACP and was invited to speak at the March on the March on Washington in 1963. She was only one of two women to do so. That one of only Which two part? women. The two that women part. bit. The two women. My part was the uh I, I couldn't imagine and like I've heard this from not from, but like I know this about like black performers in like the early thirties, like you had to go through like the color door in the back, but you're performing on the stage. Like, Oh yeah. That's wild to me. That's what like you, I love that part of it that she yeah, was like, like she was like, that. no, I'll walk through the door. Or I won't walk at all. Like you, you can't, you won't do this to me. Like you put me on the bill. People are here to see me and you're going to treat me like I'm nothing. I'm like, absolutely not. So absolutely, like good for yeah. her, good for other people who like stood up and like didn't take that bullshit. For example, there is the actress Ruby D. Uh, you might know her from films such as A Jackie Robinson Story, A Raisin in the Sun, and Do the Right Thing. She was a Broadway and film actress who was active in supporting the civil rights movement through the arts. She challenged negative stereotypes about subservient roles of African Americans on stage and in film, right? So that everyone wasn't playing the the manservant the or the, the mammy or whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? She was known to take non-traditional lead roles for black actors, and she wrote positive portrayals of African-Americans in her own works. She was a member of the Congress of Racial Equality, the NAACP, and more. And in 1963, she emceed the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. 
So she was there too. Mm -hmm. And then there were the events that were heavily covered by the news and media of the time, but they often left the women involved in these events out of the story. So let's take another look at Brown versus Board of the Education case for the moment, but from the view from the point of view of women and girls left out of the conversation by the media. Yeah, this like it, it just finding out all this information. I was just like, how how do we not know about all of these people? So first, there's Constance Baker Motley. She was the first female attorney for the Legal Defense Fund and wrote the original complaint in Brown versus Board of Education. Not only was she involved in the case, but she also played an important role in representing black students seeking admission to universities in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina. She was also the first black woman to ever argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, the first to serve in the New York State Senate, and the first woman to serve as Manhattan's borough president. That is super impressive. Mm-hmm. And also, I... It's not yeah, first right? black woman, first any woman. Manhattan borough president. That's like really cool. Uh, but I was also thinking Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, the states where this fuck shit still happens, the states that are still really racist. Mm-hmm. Like it's so ingrained. Like it's really that sad. generational, <laughs> like passing down of yeah. perspectives. Ugh. Is, ugh, gross. It is really gross. Next up, are Doris Faye Jennings and Doris Ray Jennings. So these two are twin sisters. I love that they have the same first name. I don't. <laughs> and I rhyming don't. last middle names. Like, no. Ridiculous. How do you tell them apart? I guess they you probably just call use them their Faye middle Ray, names. But even yeah, then. Yeah, but like. My mom, can, my mom will be like, Rebecca Ashley. Like, she'll run through all of our names. My grandma used to do that too. Like she would say everyone's name, like in order of birth. And it was like, she'd finally get to me. And it's like, yeah, how can I she help w- you? my mom would do that. Except that I was like the, the first one. And somehow she would still miss me. And my stepmom used to do it about my brother, but she would mm-hmm. call it her own brother's name. So instead she'd be like, instead of saying Jason, she would call him mm-hmm. Dennis. And then, and then when she had two more kids, it was like, go mm-hmm. through the whole line of them. Oh my God. Anyway, maybe this is their way of avoiding that. Like if both their kids are named Doris, then there's not an issue. <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, uh, I'm sure these, these girls did like great work, but I really hate their names <laughs> or their parents for not being imaginative. Anyway, Doris and Doris uh, were 13 years old and their father named them as plaintiffs in a desegregation case in Texas. Thurgood Marshall argued the case, and although it was unsuccessful, it was the first of five cases that created the foundation for the success in Brown versus the Board of Education. Then there's Catherine Carper, who was another young girl whose situation played a role in the Brown case. At only 10 years old, she and her mother were the first to sign on to the lawsuit that would become Brown versus Board of Education. Because of segregation, if Catherine wanted to attend school, she would be required to travel over eight hours to and from school each day. Clearly, this was not safe or feasible. No. That's insane. Yeah. Like, even if that's that's the total, even if it was four hours and four hours, that's still seven hours and 50 minutes too long. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's insane. So then you have Barbara Johns, who was a 16-year-old student who led an all-black student walkout to protest the conditions of their Virginia school. It was one of the earliest youth-led protests of the civil rights movement, and the initial goal was for a new building. 
the goal later shifted into integration and was cons- consolidated into the Brown case. So I love this, that there were all of these like separate cases that had something mm-hmm. to kind of sort of do with it. And then they put them all together and said, hey, let's like these all these cases are evidence for why this isn't working. Exactly. They're stronger together. I do really love that. Now let's address another well-known civil rights movement event, the Greensboro sit-ins. Many people have heard of the Greensboro Four. Uh, That is four young African-American male students who staged a sit-in at a segregated Woolworth's lunch counter. What a lot of people don't know is that there was a group of young women that helped start this sit-in and many other protests around Greensboro. These young women were students and, fun fact, there's even a play entitled Rebellious that details their involvement in these events. By the third day of the Greensboro sit-ins, there were over 60 protesters present. It's estimated that one-third of these protesters were women and that many of them were from the historically black women's college, Bennett College. So how else were women involved in these events? Let's talk about Ruby Hurley. She was the NAACP's National Youth Secretary from 1943 to 1952. So while the sit-ins in Greensboro didn't take place until 1960, Hurley's work organizing youth councils and college chapters played a role. During her tenure, she built a base of 25,000 members. And it was some of these NAACP youth council members that launched the sit-in movement, proving the value of her work. Like, she got all these people together there to be like hey we're gonna do something big hold on a second and then like when it came they just like got their marching orders of where to do their sit-ins and like she found all these people it's amazing it kind of reminds me very like weird parallel here but like how you said this podcast wouldn't exist without barnes and noble tribeca it's like yeah. these sit-ins would not have existed if she hadn't done the work to create these councils and chapters mm-hmm. and these spaces where people can come and say I don't like what I'm seeing. What can I do? Like, I think that that's Mm -hmm. definitely one of the most important steps in all of this, because you can be mad at home alone, but like the second you're mad in a group of like three or four, that group can grow and then you can make change from it. Yeah. When students like Ann Moody from Tugaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi, heard about the successful efforts in Greensboro, they decided to try the same thing at their local Woolworths too. Woolworths. I never can say that right. Tugaloo. <laughs> You're stuck on Tugaloo, and what I'm like, that? Woolworth. <laughs> Woolworth. Tugaloo. T- Tugaloo. I'm Googling it. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> That's where it was located, I think. Why is it called Tugaloo? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. It's still around. Well, that's good. In this case, it was only a matter of minutes before the crowd began to attack Moody and her friends. They poured things like flour, sugar, and mustard on them, and one activist was even hit with a set of brass knuckles. This event, which took place in 1963, was recorded and photographed by the media, and the images of peaceful student protesters and a violent crowd were seen in all the papers, making it hard to swing the narrative that the black protesters were the aggressive ones. The images and the sit-ins were working to change minds in America. So back to Tugaloo real quick. It's a Native American word that means where two rivers meet. Oh, I like that. Which sounds really cool. And now it's like, oh, Tugaloo, because I feel like Lou is the water and Tug is the the two. I don't know. But it, it sounds so silly. 
But like now it sounds really pretty when you know what the meaning is. I was like, I have to look this up before I make fun of it because it probably is something important. Tugaloo. I like it. Two Rivers Meat. I like that. Okay. That's an F uh, wordage. Wordaging. Etymology. (laughs) Etymology. There you go. (laughs) I like whatever I said a second ago. I forgot wordage. Wordage. (laughs) I like wordage. So civil rights leaders quickly understood the power of photography to help bring awareness to their cause and raise funds for the effort to overthrow segregation laws. Some of the most iconic, sympathetic, and powerful images of this time were featuring women. We will share these on the Instagram, but like I'll describe some of them for now. So we all know the one of Rosa Parks getting like fingerprinted by like the white cop. So there's also the one of Coretta Scott King. Also, if you just Google these, if you don't want to wait for me to post them on the Instagram, which I will post them the same day, impatient, um, you could Google them as you're listening to this. Um, So there's the one of Coretta Scott King standing over her husband's casket after he was assassinated. Yeah. One of the most iconic images of the civil rights era was a 15-year-old Elizabeth Eggfort simply walking to school while being followed by a menacing, hateful mob mad about integration. Like... It was during the Little Rock School integration crisis. It's, mm-hmm. I feel like it's something you would see. She's wearing like a white dress. She's got like these kind of cool sunglasses on, but they're technically just like her glasses, but they look dark. And there's just like angry white women behind her. Like you can see the hatred on their faces and she looks unbothered. I know like, it's that a very image, cool photo. Yes. But I never knew her name. And exactly. I think that's Neither. the issue. Yeah. Yeah. And like you can feel the hatred in the photo and it's, it's menacing like mm-hmm. it's it's, it's sad, palpable but, like you, you just yeah. feel that oh and she looks unbothered and i hope she was but like she couldn't have been like no. she's just trying to go to high school man like who even wants to go to high school and then you have to deal with like races on top of it oh so these photographs would go on to be published in life magazine time and other media that reached deep into the, all corners of america Many Americans weren't exposed to the effects of racial segregation, and the media was helping to change that, even if they wouldn't tell us who they were. <laughs> no, I'm sure they did name her, I'm but sure. at that at that time, at that time they named her. But like as it went down through history, like that name didn't get lifted up as as much as I think it should have. No. So Hollywood has found a space for the unsung woman of this time. Um, there have been a few films that have showcased how hard women work to make change. There's Selma from 2014. It is a chronicle of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and the historic 1965 march on Selma to Montgomery that we discussed before. So the film's focus is King, but it also heavily acknowledges Coretta Scott King and Annie Lee Cooper. Quick story about Annie Lee Cooper. Um, she was a voting rights activist. And like in the film, they depict her like going to register to vote and there was always some bullshit like one time she had to like guess how many marbles were in a jar another time she had to list like her like five grandfathers above her like five men above her but it was like okay i can go back to because there was slavery so i don't know like my great grandfather's name like all these hoops she had to jump through to like be able to vote and she was like fuck this like we're changing the laws so she is best known for punching the dallas county alabama sheriff jim clark in the face she was arrested and let go but she punched this man in the face and he was apparently a huge racist and like wow color me shocked yeah and i'm just like how'd that happen i need to do more research but like she punched this dude in the face all right always punch a racist always punch a racist that's a t-shirt that's a t-shirt 
Uh, there's also Ghosts of Mississippi from 1996, which features the widow of Medgar Evers and her battle to get justice for the 1963 murder of the civil rights leader while she continues his work. Additionally, we have Four Little Girls from 1997, which is a documentary of the notorious racial terrorist bombing of an African-American church during the civil rights movement in which four young girls lost their lives. And that is directed by Spike Lee. That one is heartbreakingly sad. Yeah. But worth watching. But like very, very fucking sad. And we have Long Walk Home from 1990. It stars Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg. They star in this depiction they star in this depiction of the Montgomery bus boycott from the participants' perspectives. Also, an honorable mention for hidden figures. So this film depicts women living in the world that prompted the need for the civil rights movement. <laughs> From small towns to the national level, women were the backbone of the civil rights movement. They were crucial strategists and activists who participated despite the real dangers of things like homelessness, unemployment, physical and sexual assault, and even death. And they did all of this even though the movement was not pushing for gender equality as well. For example, the March on Washington advocated equality for African Americans in American society, but the march was largely dominated by men. The formal programming for the march initially excluded any prominent women of the civil rights movement from speaking at the march. There was only one woman on the administrative committee for the march, Anna Arnold Hedgeman, and she protested the lack of women. In response, the male organizer of the march, A. Philip Randolph, and the male leadership, including Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer, John Lewis, Roy Wilkins, and Whitney Young, opted to add a short tribute to Negro women fighters for freedom. That was presented by Daisy Bates. Women were also excluded from the delegation that met with President Kennedy later that same afternoon, further highlighting the sexism and marginalization that women faced within the civil rights movement. Or maybe they thought they'd be too thirsty for him. He is. <laughs> Girl, he was no. hot for then. <laughs> he was hot for then. He still is like one of the most attractive presidents we had. The bar is very low, but like he was hot for like a president. Obama was hotter than he was. Yes, but also like he's old now. I don't know. Like, yes, you're not wrong. <laughs> but like if you had to do like top five most bangable presidents, <laughs> Kennedy's like number two because the bar is so low. <laughs> Now I'm thinking of a list. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt's on there too. <laughs> no, you would. Theodore Roosevelt is definitely your type. <laughs> he is my type. Fucking Grover Cleveland would be on there. <laughs> Wait, I don't know what he looks like. Anyway, back on topic. I don't know. That's a. We should save that for um, Ask Me Anything. We'll think of five bangable presidents for both of us. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. Most of the national leaders of the civil rights movement were men, but the energy and support at the grassroots level was often led largely by women. In their communities, they worked to translate public victories such as the Civil Rights Act and the Voter Rights Act into concrete local initiatives and change. Women of the civil rights movement built on existing networks of friends and family embedded in local institutions, such as churches. They knew who to turn to and how to get things done, and they got it done. 
recruiting other women through existing networks, meeting in safe spaces such as beauty parlors, and building support through canvassing door-to-door played a crucial role in getting women on the front lines of boycotts, voter registration drives, demonstrations, and even acts of civil disobedience that landed these women in jail. As Ella Baker put it, the movement of the 50s and 60s was carried largely by women. So let's talk about some more of these women. Let's start with Ella Baker. She was essential in organizing the founding conference of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as the SNCC, at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. She even persuaded MLK Jr. to invest in the conference, which would help motivate young people across the country get involved with the civil rights movement. Then there's Diane Nash. She was a leader in the SNCC in Nashville, Tennessee. By 1960, she was one of the most well-known and respected student leaders in the city. She helped organize the Nashville sit-ins and sustain the Freedom Rides. Johnny Carr was also heavily involved in making local changes within her community. She was politically active in her hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, and worked on the Montgomery bus boycotts. In 1964, she filed a suit against Montgomery County Board of Education for their son to attend the local white high school. They won their case in 1969. So presumably, presumably the kid wasn't (laughs) in school anymore, but that's not the point right <laughs> the point is I to mean, make is that it? changes going forward right oh so it wasn't just for him so it was for everybody because i was like were they like oh yeah i guess we can let you win now now that the kids like graduated or maybe else. there would be damages if it was just for them i don't know mm. i assumed it was like if they win this case then it could be something that like Across other people can do i hope so i think so that makes sense i mean i don't think we would i don't think it would be noted if it was just her kid and then he couldn't even go <laughs> right Well, speaking of children in school, we want to talk a little bit about Ruby Bridges. If you haven't heard of some of the names that we've mentioned today, you might have heard of Ruby Bridges. She's often used as an example of how recent the civil rights movement and school segregation is to our own time. Why? She's only 69 years old. Mm. People often suggest that the civil rights movement was so long ago or that there was something that happened to people, quote, back then. But it was not that long ago honestly right and we can see that when we consider that ruby bridges is only 69 who is ruby bridges anyway i mean maybe we've heard the name maybe we haven't but she was a young girl during the civil rights movement and when she was only six years old she became the first african-american child to integrate schools in louisiana So on her first day of school, she and her mother entered the school escorted by U.S. Marshals. They were taunted and threatened as she approached Johnson Lockett Elementary School in New Orleans. There was only one teacher willing to teach Ruby, and none of the parents allowed their children to be in the class with her. So she was the only one in in her kindergarten class. She couldn't even eat lunch in the cafeteria or go to recess because of the dangers of violence. Despite all of this, Bridges never missed a day of school. It just, it makes me so sad for this little girl who just yeah. is trying to get an education and probably doesn't care one way or another, but is like... No, but I mean, like, she definitely suffered so much to be the first, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so much of your school is community, like, integrating with other kids and, like, learning how to be amongst other kids and, like... I, I remember like the things I remember about school is not learning. It's about like the games I learned or like the things I played with like other kids. Right. So, like, she didn't have any of that. And she just had stress in kindergarten. Like, yeah, that's like so much trauma to like build up. Like, why would you even want to go to school? Like, I'm, I can't believe she made it through. Like, I would feel like, okay, 
by the time I'm in third grade, can we do something else? Like, this is too stressful. Like, yeah, this is hard. I mean, I don't know how it changed over the course of the years. Like, was mm. it by the second year there were more kids? Was it by, like, Maybe. I don't know. Ruby Bridges may be considered the poster child for school desegregation, but children were not always the center of attention for these movements. One example of this is Claudette Colvin. Now, we're going to come back to her again in the next section on impact, but let's talk a little bit about her now. Basically, nine months before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin resisted giving up her seat on a crowded Montgomery bus. Her actions actually inspired the planned protest conducted by Rosa Parks later that same year. There are a few reasons for not publicizing Colvin's efforts. The first was her age. She was only 15 years old at the time. The second was at the time of her hearing, she was unmarried and pregnant. She wasn't pregnant that day on the bus, though. Which was like literally what I had always heard when I learned oh, about really? Claudette Colvin. It was like, oh, they didn't want her because she was a 15-year-old who was pregnant and unmarried. And I'm like, okay. But like, she wasn't at the time of... Like, mm -hmm. like, cause it was, oh, how could we ask a pregnant woman to stand up on the bus kind of thing? That, oh. that mentality more. No, I didn't hear. I, I knew she wasn't pregnant, but I think the first time I heard about her might've been on Drunk History. Um, Do you remember that show? Yeah. And honestly, I couldn't tell you when I learned about her, but it was definitely as an adult. Yeah. No, me too. Like, that's kind of wild. Colvin's testimony in Gale versus Browder, which was about the segregated buses, helped to end transportation segregation in Alabama. So she helped at the end. The figureheads that we know from the civil rights movement are mostly male. The women worked hard, but mostly in the background. It was deemed unladylike to do the same things that men did for the movement. This was just traditional thinking for the time. Even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself wasn't perfect and was actually known for being a bit sexist. According to civil rights activist Bernard Lee, King was a male chauvinist. King, like many men of the time, believed that a woman's place was at home, taking care of the children and keeping the house in order so that the men would have something calm to come home to. And like, we don't say this to like discredit King, but to paint a picture of the time. Equimi Michael Thiel, I think that's how you say his name, uh, who was a student at Howard University and a leader of the Nonviolent Action Group, spoke of the struggles women faced. In an article written for the Library of Congress, he states, It is only in retrospect that I recognize the extraordinary price that our sisters paid for being as devoted to the struggle as they were. It meant that they weren't into homecoming queen kind of activities, that they weren't into the accepted behavior of a Howard lady that they weren't into fashion and dressing up. They didn't have time to be just college students or just young women going on about their lives. The movement was so important. He goes on to say, they weren't the kind of trophy wives for the med school students. They occupied a place outside of the conventional social norms of the whole university student body. So did the men. But with the men, I think that we could just say, kiss my black ass and go on about our business. It wasn't so clear to me that the women could do the same thing. Yeah, I bet they couldn't. <laughs> yeah. These women worked in the trenches with the men. And what did they get for it? Well, most of the time they were sexually harassed and their work was diminished, you know? Of course. Yeah, sexism. Sexism is like uh, it crosses races. 
It's, a, it's always a free with purchase. <laughs> Jesus. No matter what you're doing, you can get some sexism. It's cool. So, for example, Gwendolyn Zora Simmons, a Spelman College student and a member of the SNCC, was one of the three women chosen to be a field director for the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. During her time there, she faced many difficulties due to her gender. She states, we had to fight for the resources, you know. We had to fight to get a good car because the guys would get first dibs on everything and it wasn't fair. It was a struggle to be taken seriously by the leadership as well as by your male colleagues. She continues, one of the things that we don't often talk about, but there was sexual harassment that often happened towards the women. And so that was one of the things that, you know, I took a stand on, that this was not we're not going to get a consensus on this. There is not going to be sexual harassment of any of the women on this project or any of the women in this community. And you will be put out if you do it. This didn't make Simmons very popular, but her work ethic did. Her male colleagues could see the hard work she was putting into the cause, but they didn't always acknowledge it. This wasn't just an issue Simmons dealt with. It was pretty across the board. Yeah. So Lonnie King, who was also an activist with SNCC in the Atlanta area, spoke very highly of his colleague, Dan- Diane Nash. We spoke about her a little bit earlier. And he was surprised when she wasn't chosen to represent the Nashville chapter of the SNCC. King expressed the same concerns and criticisms about, criticisms about male privilege that Simmons had. King said, Diane Nash, in my view, was the Nashville movement. And by that, I mean this. Others were there, but they weren't Diane Nash. Diane was articulate. She was a beautiful woman, very photogenic, very committed, and very intelligent and had a following. I never did understand how, maybe except for sexism, I never understood how James Beville, Marion Barry, and for that matter, John Lewis, leapfrogged over her. I never understood that because she was, in fact, the leader of Nashville, it was Diane. The others were followers of her. So I never understood that, I have to be honest with you. She's unsung, a real unsung hero of the movement in Nashville, in my opinion. So I want to be like, Lonnie, thank you so much for your kind words. However, we could really leave out the parts about her being like beautiful and photogenic. Yeah. Those facts mm-hmm. didn't like help her be better at leadership. But like, thank you for everything else that you said and for acknowledging it. Yeah. No, I I had the same reaction when I was reading that quote. I was just like, it was like a stop, right? It was like, mm. did we have to go there? <laughs> we didn't, did we? Like She was so smart, but she was also really hot. Like, all right. Yeah. Like, you know, what? You know I never looked her up. John Lewis, you know, just, I I don't know. I can't even make the parallel on the, on the opposite side to say like, oh yeah, you know, he was a hottie. (laughs) Like, like, it just, you're not going to say that. So why say it about a woman? Anyway, although the civil rights movement didn't do a great job dealing with issues like sexism, it did provide a blueprint for others to follow. The women of the civil rights movement laid the foundation for the second wave feminism movement. Black women in the movement hit the ground running and women outside the movement were inspired and eager for change, many of them working together to achieve these changes. Some of the early women's liberation groups were spawned from within the SNCC as black and white women started to call out racial and sexual inequalities all around them. They struggled with sexual harassment in the civil rights movement. It made them say, no more. Other movements like the gay liberation and disability rights movements also credit the civil rights movement as a model for their organizing and activism. Even though credit wasn't given at the time, the women of the civil rights movement planted a seed for freedom and change around the world. 
So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had the biggest impact on women, not just African-American women, but women in general. Women of all races benefited from this act, which stopped discrimination and employment on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, and sex. I feel like there's a little bit of irony that those who fought against liberation of black people ended up getting more freedom than some black people did. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely like we have to acknowledge that the people who benefit most from these changes are white women. And like without fighting for it, like some of them actively fighting against it because they didn't want to see black people have like better things automatically just like got lumped into a category and like got their status like upgraded mm-hmm. uh, it's funny we don't want y'all to be fooled here right helping women was not the main goal here the bit about women was actually added by a congressman from virginia he thought that by giving women protections the act wouldn't get passed but jokes on him the act passed granting broad workplace protections to women and minorities how mad do you think that dude is now like when it passed, he was probably like, fucking shit. What happened? I thought we were all on board with this. I thought we all hated women. What's happening? Like, <laughs> I'm sure all his friends were just like, bro, I got you. You messed up. <laughs> no, I think they were on his side because they're all racist and sexist. No, but like when it didn't work, oh. they were probably like, this was Jim's. I didn't bother to look up his name because like, fuck him. Um, they were probably just like, oh, you messed like you messed it up double. Like, not only do black people have more power, now the women do. What, what is this? How am I supposed to go home and tell my wife that she can't, you know, leave the house? Thanks a lot, Jim Bob. I don't know what his name is. So it's, it's Jim Bob in my head. Jim Bob, Virginia. So, Jim Bob. <laughs> so even though the goals were met in the civil rights movement, it had its internal issues. So the accomplishments of the women, like we said many times, were overlooked and often overshadowed. Even though everyone was in the fight towards the same goal, men were always at the forefront. So let's take some time to give those ladies a little bit of flowers for the women who worked really hard behind the scenes. So we spoke about Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin earlier. Let's take a look at that situation in a little more detail. In an interview with NPR, Colvin says that the NAACP and all the other black organizations felt Parks would be a good icon because she was an adult. They didn't think teenagers would be reliable. Colvin goes on to say Parks had the right hair and the right look. Her skin texture was the kind that people associate with the middle class, says Colvin. She fit that profile. Local civil rights leaders were aware of the issues that Colvin faced that day, but they didn't move forward for the reasons that Colvin listed. She was a dark-skinned teenager who very soon after this became pregnant. They were looking for a perfect poster woman for their cause, and Parks was it. We literally do not have time to get into the colorism issues that have a chokehold on the black community. Also, lots of other communities, like I've been noticing over the years, like it's not just black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, the leaders thought that the proximity to whiteness would help their fight. Parks wasn't white, but she looked closer to white than Colvin did. We'll never know how far the movement could have gotten with Colvin as the face of it, but I am glad that the his- that history is made aware of her contributions now. Colvin herself has stated, let the people know Rosa Parks was the right person for the boycott, but also let them know that the attorneys took four other women to the Supreme Court to challenge the law that led to the end of segregation. Claudette Colvin was one of those women, and she's proud of what she did and the role she played in the civil rights movement. So for many women, the impact they had lasted way beyond the 1950s and 60s and extended into other organizations and causes in their personal lives. 
One such woman was Angela Davis. She joined the civil rights movement in 1963 after bombing after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four girls. That's the one that um that you the mentioned in the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that one's based on. While Davis got involved at this point, she's probably known better for her participation in the Black Power movement and the Black the Black Panther Party and the American Communist Party in California. She had spent her life combating all forms of oppression. She has been an active student, teacher, writer, scholar, activist, and organizer. She's a living witness to the historical struggles of the contemporary era. In 1969, she came to national attention after being removed from her teaching position at UCLA because of her social activism and her membership in the Communist Party. In 1970, she was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for the murder of Judge Harold Haley. She was only the third woman ever on that list. She fled and hid. She avoided arrest for two months before being taken in. She was found not guilty of the crime by a jury in 1972. She devoted her life to change and almost ended up in prison for it. Her passion and her livelihood teaching was stripped from her for many years when second least bangable president ronald reagan was governor of california he vowed which like gross what are you a magician you're vowing things shut up anyway like what like a like a wizard like someone who's like casting a spell on when someone. I hear like vows, I, vow. I think of like getting married or something <laughs> no i think of like a dramatic person who's like you'll rue the day or something oh, like okay, putting like okay, a huge okay. curse on someone like i vow that you'll never teach again like got it who are you like you're temporary shut up so like i said he vowed like a magician <laughs> <laughs> he vowed that Angela Davis would never teach again in the University of California system. However, in 1994, she was appointed to the University of California Presidential Chair in African American and Feminist Studies. She's also a distinguished professor emerita in the history of consciousness and feminist studies departments at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Take that, Reagan. So many people right now know Coretta Scott King as the wife of Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin. He's got so much name. Dr. Reverend or Reverend Doctor. I forget which one comes first, but he's got both. I think it's Dr. Reverend. Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. That's why they say MLK, but like, I feel like that's rude. Like you have to acknowledge all the things. Right. Because unlike AOC who embodied that, he never had a chance to say like, yeah, call me MLK. So I'm going to say it right, but it's a tongue twister, but out of respect, Dr. Reverend, Mar- Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> that was her husband. But Coretta was also a member of the NAACP before that. So Coretta was also known through the civil rights movement. Um, she fought for civil rights both in the both U.S. and internationally. After her husband's assassination in 1965, she continued his legacy. She continued her legacy and his by founding the MLK Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change. The King Center, as it's often referred to, offers a variety of volunteer opportunities for those passionate about political empowerment, environmental justice, criminal justice reform, and education. Outside of the center, King worked for over 40 years, traveling all over the world, speaking out on behalf of racial and economic justice, women's and children's rights, rights for the LGBT community, and religious freedom. She even advocated for the needs of the poor and homeless, employment, and nuclear disarmament. 
lately her name has been coming up in the world a lot un- under kind of like the wrong kind of support. So former actor and heartthrob of mine, I will admit, I really liked him, Jonathan Majors. But he's <laughs> Keyword <done> now. former now. <laughs> former, yeah. It just it's that meme. It's it's that that clip from America's Next Top Mom. Like we were all rooting for him. Mm-hmm. I was rooting for him, and he like. He ruined it. He ruined it for himself and me and Marvel and everything. But anyway, so the more I learn about him, the worse I'm like, ugh, it's better. It's for the best because you seem like a real douche. So he's been called out for asking his partners to be my Coretta. In an article titled "Jonathan Ma- What Jonathan Majors Misses When Invoking Coretta Scott King as a Mere Prop for Men. God, that title. Uh, the writer, Nardos Haley, explains how Majors is wrong. And ABC News journalist, journalist Lindsay Davis asked the actor how he described his relationship with his new girlfriend, Megan Good. She's an actress. Um, he said, everything has kind of gone away and it's just me and you now. You know, my lovely, you know, my partner, Megan, and my dogs. She's an angel. She's held me down like a Coretta. Ew. Not yeah. like Coretta, like a Coretta, I think like is what Coretta. that, that, that it's what's like really doubles yeah. down and making it terrible Mm -hmm. the article goes on to say this isn't the first time that majors has invoked the name coretta scott king in december during the trial against majors for assaulting his ex-partner grace jabari it was revealed in an audio recording that majors told jabari to behave more like coretta and former first lady michelle obama so this be like coretta mindset does damage in this case as majors and maybe others maybe have forgotten who and what Coretta was about. This idea reduces her down to being nothing more than a smiling doting prop. Meanwhile, she was an accomplished musician, author and a civil rights leader all on her own. And before she met him and before she met him. Exactly. Like this is not a stand by your man situation. Like even or why not both situation? You know, like she she was involved in it herself, which is how yes. she like met him and, and got involved with him. And mm-hmm. yeah, she did stand by him throughout, but she also stood for her own causes as well. Exactly. But I don't like I don't know the length because I know they were like King cheated, but I, I don't think that she would have stood by him if he like assaulted another woman. Like I think Majors, his whole thing is like. A Coretta would stand by you no matter what and support you no matter what. And Mm. I feel like Coretta Scott King is a wise woman and would know when the what was too much. Also, you know, she couldn't have her own bank account. Of course, she's going to stand by her man. Yeah, she had to stand a little bit closer because she had none of her own money. You're right. Like the time frame. So on Twitter, Bernice King, the King's youngest daughter, tweeted, my mother wasn't a prop. She was a peace advocate before she met my father and was instrumental in him speaking out against the Vietnam War. Please understand, my mama was a force. And that's a perfect way to describe all the women in this era. Some of their work went underappreciated and unrecognized, but they didn't let that stop them. They were a force fighting for so much more. All right. So final thoughts, takeaways. So I feel like growing up, like you definitely hear about the men and like their wives that supported them, but you didn't hear about like the individual women who gave up so much to be a part of this movement. Mm -hmm. I think media and history books really have a way of like cleaning things up. So we could talk about Rosa Parks because she's like a sweet old lady. (laughs) Like me, a 42 year old sweet old lady. (laughs) (laughs) Who just wants to take the bus. (laughs) Jeez. 
So you can talk about Rosa Parks because of like her, you know, like very sweet image, but like Angela Davis is a criminal and she can't be in the history books under the same light, right? It feels it feels disingenuous. It feels very choosy. I don't I don't like it. But speaking of Angela Davis, I feel like we need to cover her in the future. Yes. I um, think she's she on our list. Is she? I think she's on our our big like we have like a big like the master like list, list of, of like yeah yeah so what about you what are your final thoughts i mean the civil rights movement was something like you know i definitely learned about it in school to a certain extent but we we really never went into a lot of depth about it i mean like the basics right martin luther king jr rosa parks that was the majority of what we learned it wasn't until i was an adult that i learned about even the truth and details to rosa parks's story and as far as Martin Luther King Jr., it was mostly the I have a dream speech and the idea that because mm-hmm. of him, we had equality in this country. <laughs> Did you know that? We have equality just because he existed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that uh, was sort of the mentality, right? No, I'm like, I'm like, we're wrapping up. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, even up until like, I think you mentioned this earlier in the episode, even like I didn't know about a lot of these people even up until the moment we were doing the research for mm-hmm. this episode. Like, and I think that's a shame. You know, I want kids to know who Georgia Clark and Johnny Carr and Claudette Colvin are too. So, you know, I'm kind of curious and I'd love for our listeners to reach out and let us know, like, how many of these names were you familiar with before we started this episode? Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Also, send us your top five bangable presents. <laughs> I'd love to read a list on the air on the air live so what resources do we have references more information there's a book called bells of liberty gender bennett college and the civil rights movement in greensboro north carolina and that's by linda beatrice brown and there is uh an article this the women of selma the backbone of a movement of a movement by kesey deveni six of the women behind brown versus board of education by the legal defense fund Women in the Modern Civil Rights Movement by the National Museum of African American History and Culture. The Invisible Women of the Civil Rights Movement by Beth Olinoff. The Sit-In Movement, a National Women's History Museum. A Woman Purpose to Be a King by Bernice A. King. Photos from the Civil Rights Movement by the High Museum of Art Atlanta. So that's online. You can just like Google um, that, basically, photos from the Civil Rights Movement. Um, high art museum and there's like a whole thing that you can just look at online most of the pictures that i described come from there so i will i'll grab them i'll I'll link it in the show notes as well when we post the episode all right so thank you for listening let us know what you thought of this episode we'd love to hear from you and are open to suggestions for women real or fictional that we should add to our list follow the podcast on all our social media platforms we're on twitter and tiktok but mostly we post on instagram and blue sky we're at Big Rip Pod on Blue Sky and at Big Reputations Pod on Instagram. Or if you prefer, you can email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. So we're basically on all of the podcasting platforms. So subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Share us with your friends, your family, and those fighting for freedom. Subscribe for new episodes and be sure to leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. It's a great way to help people find us. And if you purchase any of our Big Reputations merch, be sure to take a picture and tag us in it. The Redbubble link is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all our social media platforms.
And as a reminder, we will be releasing one big reputation episode each month. As a bonus, we'll be sharing some of our favorite Patreon exclusive little reps throughout the year. But if you want even more bonus content, our Patreon has you covered. In addition to our little reps episodes, we'll also be doing movie reps, where we discuss films with a focus on women. For just $5 a month, you can have exclusive access to everything. This month's little rep is Cori Bush. Stick around after the episode for a little teaser of what's to come. All right, let's wrap up this episode on our Black History Month celebration here. Kim, what quote do you have for us this week? So I have one from Angela Davis. I am no longer accepting the things that I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. Hell yeah. Right? And as always believe women. So we have a little rep for you today, like we do always. We're talking about Corey Anika Bush, an American politician currently serving as the U.S. representative for Missouri's number one congressional district. <laughs> the number one, not their first congressional district, oh, but the number one congressional district. I love I it. Leave it. Leave listen, it. Listen. Leave it. I'm not, I don't even know what that means. I just know that she like passes laws sometimes. Well, what is, so for example, um, AOC's congressional district is New York 14.